right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, that's right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus. Hello, Professor Kaplow. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Are you enjoying uh, the feeling of being available on Spotify? I don't think I could enjoy it any more than I have been over the last week. The, the outpouring of support and just people coming up to me on the street saying, you know, if I stumbled across your, your podcast on Spotify, I immediately subscribed and I've been sort of doing a deep dive into the older seasons. It's been very heartwarming. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I appreciate all of the kudos, emails and, and, um, notes that we've gotten. It's been great. We appreciate that. And the other thing is we should mention one of the nice things about Spotify is that they can tell you sort of what our listeners like also listen to. And so we now know that our listeners are Elvis Presley fans. <laughs> and what was it like Mozart or Debussy or, or some, there's some classical like Shostakovich or, or something like some sort of classical music uh, person as well. So it's an odd, odd kind of fit, odd pairing. Um, well, and some indie bands. I mean, it's not, it's not right, all. I never heard of those before. So I couldn't, I couldn't comment on those <laughs> ones because there were bands I'd never heard of before. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I'm not a big. I mean, I like music, but I don't really know indie bands per se. Yeah, the, I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're great acts, but the analytics that come from Spotify are, are truly terrifying and upsetting, and a reason enough not to use Spotify if you um, if you are on the fence. Um, but they do provide some very interesting interesting <laughs> analytics. And the problem right now is we have a, a fairly low end here in our in our analysis. Right there, maybe maybe aren't that many uh, Spotify subscribers yet. So um, we're getting not some yet yet. So we're getting some strange results. But yeah, it's it's kind of bizarre to see. Oh, people who like your podcast also listen to you know this indie band you've never heard of, which is you know right. I guess kind of fun. Right. So. Today, I thought maybe we could kick off the podcast talking a little bit about uh, Russia's decision, recent decision to suspend participation in the New START arms control treaty, something we kind of mentioned at the end of the last podcast episode. So I feel like we promised a discussion of this very important international security issue. So we should we should follow through on that. The just backstory here, maybe we should I'll say a little bit about what the New START treaty is and does. This is a treaty that was signed under the Obama administration. It's a bilateral treaty between the U.S. and Russia. And the main goal of the treaty is to kind of limit the number of deployed nuclear weapons, de deployed strategic nuclear weapons. And this is kind of the latest in what had been a series of, of arms control, bilateral arms control treaties designed to kind of keep limits on the number of nuclear weapons um, that U.S. and Russia were, were fielding. It places limits on the number of deployed warheads. It places limits on the number of deployed um, launchers, so uh, ICBMs um, or intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, um, and also bombers that could drop uh, nuclear weapons. So there are, there are limits on all of those. Another thing that the, the treaty does is it provides for inspections. So there are inspections allowed, physical in-person inspections at facilities in both countries um, by the other country. Um, in addition to allowing for satellite observation and, and other forms of inspection. 
And then there's a kind of risk reduction piece of the a treaty as well. So there's like a bilateral commission that comes together as part of the treaty to work out any disputes. And that's actually a really important piece of the of the story because there's there's an element not just of limiting the number of weapons, but of like building confidence between the two sides. Um, and there are other kind of notification requirements that I think do the same kind of thing. Like you notify the other side when you're launch, test launching a missile, for example. So this is what the, the treaty was is um and it was signed it was a 10 year treaty signed under obama um and then it was extended as one of kind of the first acts of the biden administration um was to extend this treaty for another 5 years so at the moment the treaty is scheduled to expire in 2026 but of course russia uh couldn't wait and uh, decided to decided to suspend their participation in the treaty um recently Suspension, I guess I should say, isn't a thing in the treaty. Like the, the treaty does not provide for one or both parties to suspend their participation. You're either in the treaty or you're not in the treaty as far as the treaty is concerned. But Russia's decided this is a thing it can do. And and uh, the U.S., you know, when, when Russia did this, said, you can't do that. You know, this is not a thing you can do. But, you know, so we, we kind of consider it um, on an international legal basis as being like they're out of the treaty. But, you know, I guess it's better for them to say they're suspending than that they're abandoning the treaty. So I know you have a have a take on this, Marcus. I mean, do you think this is maybe um, one way that Putin decides to to act out in the world is by uh, tearing up treaties in, in, in front of everybody? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And but before I get to that uh take, I just also you did a very nice job in the sort of recent history, but I think it's also important to remember like where these nuclear treaties like kind of came from and started. In 1985, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev had this uh very important summit in Geneva in November, and you know, they didn't hash out sort of all of their disagreements. They didn't come to complete understanding on every issue, but what they did do in the joint communique after the meeting was they made this this sort of statement, this like very famous statement in the middle of the Cold War, which was a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And from that moment, both Russia or the Soviet Union at that time and the United States kind of took the stance that this is uh, for real. Like we we both agree, like it's ne- it's in neither of our interests to fight a nuclear war. And so therefore we need to make sure that, that that's not going to happen or that's l- unlikely to happen. And one of the ways that they attempted to do that was to put in place these nuclear treaties. And so we had a number of different treaties starting in the 1980s, going through the 1990s and 2000s. And as you point out, over time, they kind of expire and new ones replace them and they get extended and so on and so forth. But the baseline is is based on this, you know, sort of very nice, uh, responsible, reasonable position that nuclear war would be bad. And so therefore, we should try not to have one. Okay, so that's the that's the basic kind of kind of idea. So when a state suspends or extricates itself from its international legal obligations in the way that Putin did um, the other day with the SALT Treaty, it's it's disappointing, it's sad, and it's also very dangerous, right? Because it's it's sort of, in a way, saying that that statement that they made, a nuclear war, you know, cannot be won and should not be fought, it, it that takes on less meaning when you have leaders who are actively saying, you know what, the treaty upon which, you know, that that, that statement, it's, it's baked into the treaty, we're not going to be a part of that anymore, right? And it's not an indication, I don't think, that, that Putin's getting ready to use nuclear weapons. I don't think it's an indication that necessarily even that nuclear war is any more likely than it was before they got out of the treaty or suspended the treaty, although I think you could probably make the argument that it is slightly more more likely. But it's just from a from a reasonable person looking at the international system who does not want to see the whole thing blow up, 
it's very sad and it's and it indicates a lack of of progress and i think that that's you know the overarching kind of main main takeaway i have from from this more specifically on putin though what i teased last time was this sort of prospect theory uh explanation for putin's behavior and i think it applies not just to the suspension of the treaty but lots of his different sort of activities uh over the past year and certainly even before that and prospect theory of course is this this basic idea that you know losses and gains for human beings uh kind of emotionally feel different you know it's like if you win a hundred dollars that's great if you lose a hundred dollars kind of hurts like more it's like the feel the bad feeling of losing a hundred dollars is not outweighed or balanced perfectly by like the gain of a hundred dollars like losing just really sucks and we try to avoid losing and one of the insights from prospect theory is that when you're in this situation where you have been losing a lot in this sort of domain of losses as as people talk about it then you're willing to take on more risk to get back what you've already lost right because you want to sort of alleviate that feeling you want to get rid of it you, you want to take on more risk to kind of get back into the winning winning zone so if like those of us that go to vegas and we, we're at the roulette table and we're losing and losing and losing we might end up you know doubling our bet doubling our bet whatever or taking more risky bets just to kind of get back what we've lost to, to alleviate all this the, the, the situation, it seems to me, with Putin is that for the last year or so, he's basically been in a domain of losses the entire time, right? Because as we've talked about on this show, no one thinks that Putin intended the war to go the way that it that it has. No one thinks that Putin is happy with the situation. No one thinks that Putin thinks he is winning. Basically, he's been in a domain of losses since, since like, you know, 48 hours into the, into the invasion. And... It seems like every time that Putin gets kind of backed into a, a corner or is in a position where, uh, you know, something uh, in addition to the like overall sense of loss has happened, he loses a battle, he loses a city or loses a town or something happens. And so he has, you know, uh, not as many supplies or whatever. He does something to try to regain some of the, the positive sort of emotional uh, feelings that prospect theory suggests. And so my interpretation of this treaty is to basically su suggest that what Putin is doing is kind of doubling down on, on his losses in the sense of, I'm going to do something to make the United States mad. I'm going to make something to make the West mad because I'm losing. I don't like that. I need to, to take more risks to like make myself feel better, maybe make my domestic politics situation better. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this risky move, suspending this treaty, because I've been losing, right? And it's just, it's, it's very much in this sort of Putin uh, uh, sort of prospect theory tendency that fits, it fits really well. I think it also connects to the topic we talked about last time, this idea of soft balancing, right? It's not that the treaty in and of itself is, is all that meaningful from a day-to-day -day thing, right? Yes, it's important that we have these treaties. It's important that we don't have the proliferation of nuclear weapons and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But from the sort of day-to-day, -day, the United States and Russia's relationship, I don't think anybody is, is seriously thinking about this in terms of, you know, Putin getting ready to have a, a nuclear war. Maybe, maybe he is, but I don't think people are thinking in, that, in those terms. Instead, what this does is it's just like another sort of like small kind of chipping away at the relationship in a, in a way that's irritating to the United States and irritating to the West. These treaties take a while to negotiate. You have to get, you know, there's political capital involved to get them. There's often like hours and hours of negotiation and all kinds of, of you know, uh, work needs to be done to create these things. And to then suspend it, I think, is, is a little bit of a, of, a, of a dig at the United States, a little bit of a knife stab uh, in the United States. Not going to change the relationship, not going to do anything from a sort of, you know, uh, uh, a material balancing of, of power type of, of thing. But is basically saying to the United States, we're not happy. We're going to show you we're not happy. We're going to make your life a little bit harder by doing this. 
And I think Putin's doing it because he's, he's losing. I think it's fun to psychoanalyze Putin. Yeah. We, we, we yeah. could, you know, that, that could be a fun episode right there. I, I do it every day. I don't know. I mean, when we think about prospect theory and we think about how people become more risk acceptant in the lost domain, right? That they're, when you feel like you're losing, you're willing to take greater risks to get back to even um, or to get into the gain domain where you feel like you're winning. Usually we think of that in terms of people doing things that are at least aimed at getting them back into the black, right? Getting them back into where they're gaining. And this kind of action strikes me as not of that type, right? Like, it's not like you're, you're playing blackjack and you're, you're uh, losing and you start betting more and more to try to get back to even. That's the way you get back to even is you bet more and play more blackjack, right? When you're losing the war in, in Ukraine, getting back to even isn't bailing on this arms control treaty. This seems like a kind of a separate thing, right? Um, but I'm with you on the idea that it's kind of a way to, to stick it to the United States for, for a minute, right? I think maybe we should talk a little bit about what the suspension actually means in practical terms. So my, my take here is that in the short term, not much, right? There, there, there isn't much impact from the suspension. And that's for a few reasons. One is that I don't see either party desiring or trying to go above the limits that are set in New Start anyway, even in the absence of New Start. And that's we can come back to like why these treaties exist in the first place. But the fact is that both parties want to stay under those limits. That's why we have a treaty saying both parties are going to stay under the limit. So the idea that the treaty is no longer being abided by doesn't necessarily mean that Russia is all of a sudden going to start building up its new nuclear deployed nuclear arsenal in some way that would violate the, the letter of the treaty. In fact, Russia has said it doesn't intend to do that. It's hard for me to imagine the U.S., deciding to do that, um, that would be pretty escalatory and, and out of character. And so uh, I don't think that that's really a risk. The inspection regime that exists within New START had been suspended um, early in the COVID uh, epidemic uh, just for because people couldn't go anywhere or, or meet, meet in, in, in places. When everyone felt okay about uh, restarting inspections, we were already kind of in the midst of uh, of the run-up to the Ukraine war, and we never kind of got it together. The U.S. in, I think, last summer sent a message to, to Russia being like, okay, we're going back in. We're ready to do our inspection. And and Russia, it, it, the um, the treaty allows countries to kind of exclude sites from its inspection based on certain criteria. And Russia responded by just excluding all of their sites. Um, and then the U.S. said, oh, you're not in compliance with the treaty. But there was never like this discussion about getting back into, into inspections. And so inspections never resumed. So we haven't had in-person inspections uh, since 2020. And, you know, I think... Both sides feel like they can adequately understand the arsenals of the other side via satellites so that maybe these inspections aren't entirely necessary, at least in the, in the short term. Um, and then what I think maybe the most important piece of this is the kind of risk reduction story that the treaty causes the parties to talk. And that's maybe the biggest loss from a Russia, Russian suspension of the treaty that this bilateral commission that would hammer out differences between the countries will not function. But some aspects of that risk reduction exist in other kinds of agreements that the U.S. and Russia have signed over the years. And so um, including one from 1988, an executive memorandum that that is operative and will remain in force. And so but the idea here is that 
uh, Russia will still tell the United States when it is going to launch missiles, for example, and the U.S. will do the same. And this is a way of avoiding misunderstanding. So even though that's part of the New START treaty, that will continue even while the treaty is suspended. And so some of the pain and anguish of bailing um, won't actually be felt, uh, which is great. So in the short term, I think there's really not much of an impact here, but it is a clear signal from Russia um, that's like a bad sign for U.S.-Russia relations, that even this thing, <laughs> that's right, hard-hitting analysis here, that this is a bad <laughs> right. sign. Like, even this thing that's this so... Is, this is what you pay for on the on the Cheap Talk podcast, this type of hard-hitting <laughs> that's analysis. Right, that's why we're free with <laughs> it's advertising. It's not a good relationship. Right. <laughs> that's right. So even, you know, even this thing that is so clearly in both sides' best interest that we can't even follow through on this because the relations have diminished to such an extent is, you know, not great. And the prospects for future arms control are very dim, right? And it was already dim and getting dimmer, right? So so Russia has been, the U.S. and Russia kind of collectively have bailed on all the other arms control agreements at this point, all the other bilateral ones. There are still multilateral agreements going. You know, so this, is, this has been a trend and uh, everyone had already written kind of the obituary for arms control. Uh, so it was it was hard to see how this process was going to continue before, even harder to see it now. And in the long term, when we get to 2026 or when we get to the point where the parties are no longer abiding by these limits, then we're going to have some issues. Right. And and so it's worth kind of thinking about what is the long term trajectory of dealing with with nuclear risk. I agree with most of what you said uh, a second ago, and I would I would further even argue that you're right that like the from the prospect theory perspective that you know this seems a little bit different than the you know playing a blackjack or whatever but i will remind you and i will remind the listeners of a very important point and it was a point that we touched on last week actually in some detail it's not like putin made this decision this announcement uh just out of thin air it came the day after biden traveled to ukraine and so i think that's coincidence. the key piece of coincidence that's the context to remember that's why this is prospect theory putin did not like watching biden walk out with zelensky he said i need to do something i feel it in my stomach my 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 the pit of my stomach i need to do something and what he does it suspends this treaty. Why? Because of that loss that he was feeling. It's just like a so conspiracy I, theory podcast now. <laughs> what, what, what is the evidence for that? We can we can get into that. We can get into it. Oh, I just think the timing is fascinating. Putin could have suspended this treaty anytime he wants, but it just so happens to be immediately after Biden shows up in, in, in Ukraine. To me, that screams Putin really did not enjoy watching CNN that day. And felt the need to, to do something about it. Maybe. In or maybe of, Russia has a foreign policy bureaucracy like our foreign policy bureaucracy. And it just and happens stuff to... Stuff takes some time to, to get through the, through the system. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what, Jeff? In like 35 years, when all this is declassified, right. what we'll do is we'll go through and we'll have an episode where we can see who was right about this. <laughs> you know, has this been in the works for months and it just so happened to be coincidentally the day after Biden showed up? Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And if, if you are we're right, doing this podcast in 35 years where we've made some bad decisions in 35 years, I will buy you a beer or whatever. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're probably going to be smoking cigars and drinking brandy at that point. So I will buy you a cigar. We'll have uh, brandy. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a believer in international law. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people would say international law is kind of a, a misnomer, right, because we don't have a, an international legal system in quite the same way that states have domestic legal systems where, you know, if you violate something, you get put into jail or they, they can you know put a lien on your house or whatever. It doesn't really exist in the same way. There's not the type of enforcement because the international system is characterized by anarchy and we don't have a world government. 
But I do think that these treaties do, if nothing else, kind of represent something in terms of the the socialization that occurs uh, to get two states or in multilateral cases, many states together to negotiate these things and work on, you know, sometimes very nitty gritty details. And I think if nothing else, these things can be, you know, indicative of, you know, progress kind of more generally, but also the specific relationship that you, you kind of are in with that country. And so I agree 100% with everything you said on the sort of technical aspects. I don't think anybody's expecting, you know, a, an arms race because of, you know, Russia's suspension of, of the treaty. I think the inspection point was a, was a fair one from Russia's perspective. The United States has been calling on the, for these inspections. They've been saying, no, we don't want to do it. The Biden administration had said, we, wanna, we really want you to do these inspections recently. And they said, no. So, like, all of these things make complete sense as to why Russia might not, you know, want to be in this treaty. Uh, despite the fact that it might be in their interest to be in it. But I think for just from a, a ideational or social perspective, when these things break down, and I thought it was true, by the way, with the, the Paris Climate Accord, like when the Trump administration got out of that, you know, I think that was not so much um, an indication that, you know, we're not going to be able to deal with climate change effectively. I mean, climate change, dealing with climate change effectively requires lots of things. The treaties are a part of it. I wasn't so much worried about the effects of the United States not, not being in it. I was worried about the signal that was sending the international system and the, the United States' desire to work cooperatively, multilaterally, to at least attempt to solve problems or, or work on problems. So when these things, you know, happen, the, the signal that gets sent to the rest of the world is that Russia or the United States, in the case of the climate change accords, not really willing to to you know work multilaterally on these issues, and so that's that's kind of the bigger kind of story for me is like the signal that Russia is sending. Now, as we just pointed out, we didn't need Russia to do this to understand the signals are sending to the international system, but it's just yet another kind of a, a, a block or brick you know on the on the the the, the edifice of a bad sort of relationship with the West. It reminds me a little bit of the discussion we had about uh, hotlines. Right. That yeah. that uh, here's a mechanism for communication between states that you really want it to work when there is a crisis. But in a in a crisis, when countries are angry, they're more likely to refuse the call on the hotline as a way to, to signal their anger. Yeah. And I feel like so, sometimes uh, international participation, in international institutions and international treaties has the same kind of feel to it, because here are treaties that are designed to kind of create a mechanism for dealing with risk for uh, building confidence between countries. And as soon as things get bad, it's easy for one country or the other to say, you know what, we're going to suspend participation here um, as a way of signaling how annoyed they are. But yet that's what the treaty is for, is to like, help us deal with the situations when there's, when there's additional risk. And so it, I think it raises the question of whether these kinds of things are particularly useful. You know, in the case of arms control, the there's kind of a, fairly big policy uh, academic gap um, as to like how useful and important these kinds of treaties are. So in the in the policy world, these things are seen as like really important and essential for managing risk and for, um, you know, uh, they have implications for defense policy and how we structure our forces and all this stuff, right? In, in the academic world, people like me think of these things as kind of like a simple coordination problem, right? That here's something where both countries want some outcome. And all that really remains here is to uh, make sure that both countries are abiding by the outcome both want. And so there's not really the it's not that the arms control treaty sets limits that constrain the countries. It's that the countries decide on their limits and then they come up with an arms control treaty that gives them confidence that the other side is abiding by this by these limits as well. And so 
you know, when you look at arms control this way, losing an agreement like like New Start, when somebody suspends or withdraws, isn't that big a deal because the country's already wanted to be at this level of warhead, right? Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have signed the deal in the first place. And so it's kind of like, well, we took away the treaty, but you already wanted to be there. And so what was the treaty actually doing? All it was doing was maybe providing confidence that the other side wasn't cheating. And that's a big, important role that in- international institutions play. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, even if Russia goes over the, the warhead limits, the U.S. really has no desire to follow suit, um, at least in, on the short term. And the same kind of logic goes goes for Russia. So I think there's a kind of interesting coordination aspect to this, but it calls in the fact that I can say, hey, no real major short-term consequences of bailing on this thing kind of calls into question the efficacy of the treaty in the first place. Now, if any policy people have kind of stumbled into this podcast accidentally, which I, you know, I apologize, I, I, they're going to be upset by that kind of statement, right? Because for, for policy folks, the, the treaties are, these kinds of arms control, arms control treaties are so self-evidently important that um, this kind of statement on my part makes no sense. So there is this uh, gap um, between how academics think about this stuff. The other thing that comes to mind when we look at something like New Start is this issue of redundancy in international institutions. So one of the things that makes Russia's suspension of New Start less painful is the fact that we have kind of overlapping agreements, right? We have other mechanisms for dealing with nuclear risk reduction, for dealing with uh, alerting Russia when we're launching a missile or vice versa, um, those kinds of data transfer and, and uh, mechanisms, we, we can do that through other agreements. And so the fact that those things will survive, even though New START has been suspended, points to one feature of international institutions that's, that sometimes they overlap and they cover kind of the same ground. And international institution scholars usually look at that as a bad thing, right? It's, it's inefficient and it leads to something called forum shopping where um, if you're going to violate a treaty, you can like look for a place where that's legal, one of your institutions where that's legal so to get away with it. Um, and so, or if you want to win some kind of adjudication in like a trade treaty that like would accuse the other side of violating their trade agreement, then you find the place to bring that case where you're going to have the most, the uh, greatest likelihood of winning. Um, and this kind of forum shopping is seen as you know not great for international institutions, but here's kind of an upside to redundancy. And that upside is a country can now use bailing on a treaty as a way to send a costly signal without necessarily losing some of the benefits that that were underlying that. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, aspect of international institutions that we don't often talk about. I was reminded when you were going on your little diatribe about how international treaties are not necessarily uh, all that indicative of, of sort of cooperation. Remember that article in graduate school, the... Um, the good news about compliance is not necessarily good news about cooperation. Do you remember reading yeah, that? Of course. Like, yeah, there you go. And I was just like really, you know, harking back all of these like debates. And, and when I first realized that there was this gap between the way the policy world and the academics kind of like looked at these things. This is my uh, world, Marcus. This is like I'm deep down at heart an international institution scholar. Oh, I, I'm yeah. aware that this is your world. I, I am. A, I'm aware this is your world. Um, and I think your last point is actually is really pertinent, right? I mean, you you've done work on the NPT. The NPT, you know, has this article in it that basically says, "Look, you gotta 
Um, if you're, if you're a member, you have to like take, take responsibility and, and make sure that you're, you know, being a reasonable nuclear state and trying not to proliferate and all that kind of stuff. So we do have these like over like Venn diagrams of various institutions that kind of have some control here or not necessarily control. That's a bad word, but have, um, ways in which states will try to do things and get things done and try to do them sort of like in illegal manners, the overlapping Venn diagrams often make it difficult uh, sometimes for them to do those things. And so that's a feature uh, in, a, in a time like this when we're trying to sort of minimize nuclear proliferation or an arms race. So I think, I think yeah, that's a very good point that you, you raise. I don't want listeners to think that just because this one treaty is quote unquote suspended, all is lost from a nuclear uh, sort of arms control, broadly speaking, uh, perspective. I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I mean, what we lose is like you can have this number of nuclear right. warheads deployed, but but that's the main thing we lose. But the the idea of committing to long term disarmament is a key feature of the whole constellation of nuclear security treaties. It's written into the NPT. All the all the countries who sign the NPT are supposed to be working toward a world free of nuclear weapons, and in practice, yep. that that's meant nothing. But um, but it's it's written in there. Right. So it and then there's the treaty to ban nuclear weapons, which, of course, the United States and and Russia are not signatories. Um, so that doesn't mean a lot to them. But you, you have yeah. this kind of uh, overlapping jurisdiction over this question of of nuclear disarmament that goes to the number of, of weapons that are deployed. If you want to get concrete results here, if you want to say, OK, right now we're at like. 1550 is the number, 1,550 deployed uh, nuclear warheads. Um, if you want to get to 1,000, you're going to need another treaty, right? Like, like the, the, that's not going to happen through kind of an informal process. That's going to be negotiators kind of hammering out what do we mean when we say a deployed warhead? And, you know, how do you take into account the uh, stocks that aren't deployed, that are in storage right now? Those are not taken into account by New START. Um, what does that mean for deployed launching systems and ICBMs? All that has to be worked out, right? So it's it, the, mecha, the, the kind of uh, technical parts of this require that process, require that treaty. And so that's where it, it is really valuable. But the general sense that countries that have nuclear weapons should be working toward minimizing those arsenals rather than adding to them is in other parts of international law and is largely ignored, right? And we can see all the other countries with nuclear weapons. So, well, China is maybe the best example of this. So China has been steadily increasing its nuclear arsenal. And in fact, one potential driver of the U.S. wanting to increase its number of warheads would be China, right? Not, not Russia. And there are voices in the U.S. kind of policy debate that would say, actually, now that Russia has bailed on New START, we should really think about whether we want to try to start up as our own kind of bilateral uh, discussion on nuclear weapons with, with China, where we have some kind of arms control that way. This was a big push during the Trump administration of bringing China into the arms control process that largely failed. And China, I think, has said pretty consistently, you and Russia deal with the arms control. We're still small enough in our, our nuclear uh, weapons arsenal that we're not going to um, – we want to see you reduce much more first before we get involved. And, I mean, that's changing, right? China has been building up its nuclear arsenal to the point where, you know, and now it maybe does make sense to have China involved in that discussion. They've shown no willingness to do that, but that's something that, that maybe is on the horizon. So I think the the push to kind of achieve parity with some future adversary, namely China, um, is kind of one thing behind the scenes that might actually cause us to to rethink these kinds of commitments and maybe having the treaty in suspended mode will be uh, – 
will help those who are making those kinds of arguments. Let's talk Russia, Ukraine, just briefly, because I, I know we always do for, for, you know, this is not a video podcast, but Marcus is making a face. We, we we talk about Russia, Ukraine a lot. I think rightly, I think it is an important issue in international security. So I, I feel justified in continuing to come back to it. The reason I want to touch on it today is just that we we passed this week the one year anniversary of uh, Russia's invasion. And it seems like a good time to just take a minute to take stock of, you know, we're a year out from the invasion. What does the conflict mean for Europe, for international security, for the countries involved? It seems, at least to me, like this is maybe a a pretty impactful, dramatic event that's occurred over the last year, um, and that maybe there are some lasting impacts from it. And so similar to the conversation we had about COVID, where we're like, ah, actually, we can't think of anything that that's a lasting impact of this. I think it's, it's worth coming back to this question and and considering what what to take from a year of uh, of Russia invading Ukraine. It's a great question, Jeffrey. Um, I think at the very beginning of the invasion, like when it when it those first sort of few days, it was so so shocking that it actually occurred. Um, I remember, you know, the months leading up to it, we saw this like sort of buildup of of troops on the on the border and everybody was sort of like worried that this might happen, but there was this sort of idea that maybe the, the Biden administration or Western leaders could pull off some type of diplomatic solution to prevent it from happening. Um, I think a lot of us thought like, okay, they're going to, they're going to figure out something. They're going to negotiate something. Something's going to, something's going to give here. And it didn't. And, and Russia invaded. And, the, and this is sort of the shock of that, um, you know, uh, uh, sovereignty being infringed upon, uh, I think to many of us was, was just very, um, foundational and rethinking sort of what that means for for Europe and for international relations. Maybe it shouldn't have been. We've also talked about this before, given that you know what Russia had done in the past in Crimea and so forth. But I think there was something different last year when this happened. And I remember talking about you know the, the various ways in which this might be changing international relations potentially you know for in the short term, but also very much in the long term. Um, for example, you know so European states fracturing and not, you know, sort of having solidarity in, in NATO, kind of trying to go their own way, thinking maybe we should, you know, join bandwagon with Russia as opposed to trying to, you know, balance against them, things like that. Uh, what's going to happen in terms of, you know, the U.S. taking a leadership role and trying to mediate some type of, you know, diplomatic uh, solution to the crisis? Will Russia win? Will Russia lose? Are they going to, are they going to, you know, go home and say, you know, we, we lost? And, and just, so all these questions, I think, um, many of which are still unresolved, by the way, a year later. Uh, I think, I think at the beginning, I was very much of the mindset that, you know, this is really is going to be uh, a game changer for Europe and international relations more generally. And I think in some areas, you know, it, like COVID, it definitely has accelerated trends that were happening before. I mean, the U.S.-China relationship, for example, was not great a year ago. It's certainly not great now. I think it's probably worse now because of the in invasion. We talked about this last week um, and the other things that have happened with spy balloons and so forth. So I think it's been sort of an accelerant in a lot of- Should of I play the music? Like, should I, should I, no, no. Well, in post, you'll put this in, <laughs> yes. And, and, uh, and that's why I brought it up, because I wanted to hear yeah, the music. Yeah. But, you know, so like great power rivalry, I think, is, has been increased because of, because of the invasion. But my overarching kind of take here uh, is, is one that I have often have on this show, which is that I just think it's too early to really know. You know, I don't even really know how to characterize the war uh, at the moment, right? I think if you look back over the last year, 
a couple of things come to, to mind. One, Ukraine has outperformed expectations. I think everybody would agree with that. I think that there was, it continues to be sort of a high level of optimism about Ukraine generally and their, their level of resolve and optimism about NATO and the West's resolve and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I'm not naive enough to think that that will necessarily continue. Russia still has a lot of military power. Russia still has a lot of resources. Russia can definitely play the long game, right? And so we might be sitting here a year from now talking about the Russia-Ukraine war, right? So for that reason, I am just very hesitant to draw conclusions uh, about the war as it's, as it's still occurring, just because I don't know what the, the end game is. And let me just say one last thing, and then I'll turn it back over to you, Jeff. I do think that the end game needs to be something that both sides, when I say both sides, what I mean here really are, you know, the Russia and the sort of West more, more generally starting to think through seriously. And the reason I say that is because I think one of the dangers in a situation like this, because Ukraine has been so successful and so brilliant, really, militarily and being able to, to overperform or out, you know, exceed expectations there might be this sort of tendency to have this level of optimism shade what people, both politicians and domestic populations in Ukraine and elsewhere, think would be a reasonable end to this war, right? In other words, when Zelensky gets, gets up there and talks about how we're going to retake all of Ukrainian territory, right, presumably including Crimea, that might be realistic, I don't know. But you could also see a situation where people will say Russia has enough resources to prevent that from happening. So that's, that's not going to happen. And not only is that not going to happen, Putin's not going to allow that to happen. Like Putin will escalate before it comes to giving back Crimea, so to speak. So I think we're at a, at a sort of perilous time in the sense that, you know, the optimism is good. And it's just it's a very sort of weird dynamic where it's 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 great that Ukraine has been so, so uh, uh, good in this war and has, has outperformed. And I'm glad that people are optimistic about Ukraine's chances. But that very optimism can often lead policymakers and populations to have expectations that may not be realistic. And so I, I, I'm, we're in this very odd space right now where I think we need to start talking about thinking or thinking through like what a potential end game, diplomatic end game to this war would look like. And ironically, the optimism in some ways might actually make that more difficult to find. What do you think, Jeff? I think that's a really great point. I feel like one thing that we've dealt with throughout the conflict is the kind of uh, rapid shift from pessimism to optimism to pessimism again about Ukraine's chances. But you remember at the beginning of the war when things like first kind of went wrong for Russia and people were saying, oh, Putin will be deposed within days, yeah. right? Like, like, uh, or he, or he's sick and he's, he's on his last, le like all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so optimism about that, that always seemed overly optimistic to me. And then pessimism about, uh, so the, the Ukraine's ability to carry out a counterattack followed by optimism that Ukraine could just march on down to Crimea and take it over. So I feel like we were kind of finding that even keel mm -hmm. where we're not careening back and forth, uh, being overly optimistic or overly pessimistic has been a kind of analytic challenge in this conflict. And so we should kind of take all of these kinds of predictions with, with a, the grain of salt that we usually do. Having said that, though, I think that there are some initial lessons we can learn or, or takeaways, ways that the war has had an impact. And I think just looking at the overall European security situation today, it looks so different. 
so different than a year ago that it's hard to imagine going back to going back to normal. Like even even if Putin withdrew from from Ukraine today and the war ended, the security landscape in Europe will be irrevocably changed. And uh, so part of this is the way that other countries have responded to Russia's invasion, that this kind of laid bare, like the real security risk, and not just these countries that kind of have always lived in Russia's shadow, but um, kind of the next tier of countries have been able to use the invasion or, or look at the invasion as a way to kind of strengthen their their security. So just looking at NATO, NATO is different today than it was a year ago. NATO is stronger. NATO is more united. NATO is potentially larger. The The way that NATO is arrayed against Russia has, has been is very different. The willingness of countries like Germany to really invest in defense uh, in, in their defenses and change their defense policies sufficiently to support like combat operations somewhere, that is a big shift. That's something that German, Germany has been reluctant to do for years, despite the urging of, of the United States and other allies to really step up their defense spending. And now Germany is doing it, and they're spending a lot more on defense. And that's a, a pretty dramatic change with pretty dramatic implications for Europe in the future. We're going through a, a period of time when, when German defense spending is both low as, a, as an annoyance to allies and also being low as kind of... Um, kind of nice for, for like echoes of past German military strength, right? So this is a, a, an issue that we're going to be facing going forward. Will Germany continue this, this policy even after the Russia threat has faded? I, maybe the biggest thing that came from this war, at least for me, is it dramatically changed my perception of Russian strength. So like everyone else, I didn't expect this to be a long war. And you can say Ukraine um, overperformed expectations, but it's also fair to say that Russia underperformed its expectations. And so there's been a lot of debate in the kind of military analysis world about the why that is. There's kind of two main hypotheses here. One is that uh, Russia tr Russian troops were uh, underprepared, ill-equipped to do their job, um, and that our previous per perception of Russian strength was wrong. Um, that Russia has always been kind of much weaker than we thought in terms of its military strength. Also, a possibility that the political plan here, the kind of march to, to Kiev um, to unseat the, the uh, Zelensky regime was ill-advised and a bad idea and, sub and made it much more likely that Russia would face defeat. And I think both of these things are true, um, that Russia's military both underperformed in terms of its its normal task of, of uh, engaging in conflict, and also that the, the political plan, the, the plan by the uh, civilian leadership, uh, put the military in a situation that, uh, that was untenable. So both of these things, though, functioning together, suggest that Russia is a lot weaker in terms of its military strength than we thought before the war. And the war has only made it weaker, right? As Russian casualties have mounted, as equipment has been lost to the conflict, the, the Russia of today is much significantly less powerful militarily than the Russia of a year ago. And so that has to change the way we think about European security, because this is the main potential European adversary. Um, so this is something that uh, really does change defense policies all over the world and is something we should be we should be looking at. So to me, what you touched on, I mean, we could actually maybe talk about this in a future. Maybe this will be a teaser for next week. But, you know. It strikes me that, like, when we think about international relations theory, right, you have, like, you know, realism is, is concerned with power. That's sort of like the, 
the overarching like principle, right? And when we talk about power, normally what we do is we think about this in terms of like material capabilities, right? So if you are thinking about like how strong is Russia or how strong is the United States, you look at I don't know how many tanks they have, how many nuclear weapons they have, how much money they spend on on defense as a as a function of their GDP, all that kind of stuff. And it seems like, and I'm not a realist, and I'm not an expert in military spending and capabilities and all that, but it certainly seems like those are not the right variables necessarily that we should be thinking about in the future, right? Like the two that you talked about, the strategy and kind of the plan, you know, or the training, those are different. They're not non-material. Like training is like material. That requires people. That requires, you know, insights and stuff like that. But they're much more kind of like ideational than they are capabilities, right? So it's sort of like if realists, what they mean by power uh, is more than just like the physical capabilities, the things that go boom and, and guns and stuff like that, then we need to be talking more seriously about those things. Because oftentimes they get in, in realist thought gets reduced down to like how much you spend on defense and, and what I mean, you know, tanks you have and stuff like that. Um, so I think that was that was one thing that sort of caught me. Uh, I thought was interesting in what you said. The other thing too that you did not mention, but I think is worth saying, and I think you implied it in in Europe, the EU, like the EU for for a very long time. It's not that they haven't had defense, but the the defense that they have had this like common defense, you know, policy. The the I forget that yep. very ESDP, right? Very very sort of stagnant, right? It was always sort of like one of these like secondary kind of thoughts. And for those of you that know the history of the EU, you know, it did sort of start as this trade kind of kind of idea, right? People have been making arguments for a long time actually that Europe, the EU, needed to take more of a uh, of an interest in sort of building up a defense and have armies and things like that that are, are sort of unified, but it never really got going. I expect moving forward, and there've already been like lots of you know sort of discussion about this, but you know the EU taking defense like much more seriously as an EU thing, so not just like Europe, uh, and which is interesting too because like that most of the EU and NATO of course overlap, like there's not complete overlapping, but like the the NATO you know defense uh, pact and you know, European Union defense, whatever that ends up kind of looking like, will have significant overlap and there'll be some challenges, presumably, in how that how that works out. But I just think that's an also a different um, uh, one of the things that might have changed over the last year is, you know, the EU realizing defense, common defense needs to be a bigger part of kind of what we spend our attention on and our money on uh, because of this this invasion. Yeah, I just Googled this because I've forgotten the acronym, but the, the current acronym is CSDP, CSDP, the Common Security and Defense Policy, right. um, used to be ESDP. But th so this is a really interesting point about kind of the role of the European Union in all this, because I think that post-Brexit, the these kinds of common defense ideas kind of diminished a little bit because the UK was such an important player in that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and without them in the mix or in the mix in a different way, uh, I think it kind of changes what we can reasonably expect the EU to put together on its own. And this was always conceived as a supplement to NATO. So for many years, the United States tried to tamp down this idea of a European security policy of its own, wanting to function, uh, the US wanting Europe to function through NATO, primarily when it came to defense stuff, because that's where the United States has a seat. And this other thing where the United States doesn't have a seat, they were like, well, we, we don't want you to create a NATO competitor um, in the in the same region. And this was an issue of some controversy in 1998, This was like a, this is like a, old, you know, this is an old debate, yeah. basically, that that was the heyday of the, of the discussions about this stuff. Um, and so I think maybe one effect of this conflict, you're right, is like, like putting these kinds of collective defense 
sorts of ideas back on the public agenda. I'm sure there were people that were working on it the whole time, but the last time I thought it was an important thing was, was the late 90s. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's an important aspect of this as well. What about nuclear stuff? Can I mention nuclear risk? Because I, I think, like, I know I always talk about the nuclear things, but, like, one important takeaway here is that this nuclear the worry about the use of nuclear weapons is still relevant today and it and you know i i always thought it was but like that's my thing i think for the public at large the prominence of nuclear you know threats and you know nuclear discussion around the russia ukraine conflict maybe came as something of a surprise because this is kind of we used to think of this as like ah this is a cold war kind of idea that the united states and and the soviet union are going to uh, get into some kind of nuclear exchange or doing duck and cover drills in elementary schools and things like this that haven't happened in a long time. But now, uh, with Russia threatening nuclear stuff, not infrequently during in the course of this war, I think for the public, nuclear issues have increased their prominence. And um, that maybe has some interesting follow-on effects. Maybe that lends some additional, I don't know, impetus to movements like the campaign to to ban nuclear weapons um embodied in the treaty to ban nuclear weapons and maybe we can see some additional public support and civil society support to those kinds of initiatives to get countries to say you know what we shouldn't be living under the threat of nuclear annihilation all the time so maybe reminding the public of these things is is potentially you know useful in generating support for for initiatives like that but it also i think puts pressure on other states that states that have nuclear weapons to think about like what is the role of nuclear deterrence in in this day and age and and the study of nuclear deterrence is like a very rooted in the cold war um and you know maybe it's time for more modern concepts of how of how nuclear deterrence might work in today's world i agree with all of that and i it reminds me of a conversation we had i think on in season 1 way back in the old days of this podcast discussing the hmm. the nuclear taboo Right. I mean, that was one of the the sort of debates that we had, like, is, is there really a taboo? If there is, is it is it strong or is it just like a norm or whatever? You know, when when Putin is out there uh, sort of hinting at the notion of nuclear escalation, it challenges the idea that there's a there's a taboo that's like really strong and constraining behavior. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, uh, there's not a strong norm against the use of nuclear weapons, obviously, but chipping away at it uh, like Putin has, I think is, is important. And I do think is, is a little bit of a game changer, like you were suggesting in the way that people, you know, just everyday people think about nuclear weapons and the possibility, like somebody might actually use a, a nuclear weapon in 2023. You know, that's, I think, a, a big change from, from a year ago. Uh, and also requires, you know, if once we get out of this war, hopefully soon, hopefully peacefully, how do you re-strengthen the 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 taboo how do you get back to the point where that is actually kind of unthinkable and we would we would rather be in a position where we didn't have to think about you know nuclear weapons potentially being used that's going to require a lot of work uh as well and your last point i think is really really true like i i don't know what nuclear deterrence looks like uh in the post russia ukraine war it feels like something has changed um dramatically but as i keep on saying you know it might be a little too early to really know yeah, and then they're kind of competing, I don't know, ways to look at this. So in one in one sense, nuclear deterrence has worked in the in Russia-Ukraine conflict, yeah. right? That the U.S. has not engaged in this conflict on the side of the Ukraine by sending troops, right, um, for fear of escalation that could lead to a nuclear exchange. Russia has not bombed 
shipments of military supplies from Poland until they get, you know, so Russia has laid off NATO states, even though they're supplying Ukraine with all this military equipment to avoid escalation that could result in a nuclear exchange. So in, in some sense, maybe nuclear deterrence is still, um, you know, alive and well. In another sense, there's a, there's kind of a negative message that comes from the conflict. And there's this public, there's this thread of public discourse that's like, Ukraine had nuclear weapons, right? Which we've, we've talked about on this podcast before, and I don't buy, but they, they had nuclear weapons on their territory when the Soviet Union collapsed. Had they not given up those weapons they wouldn't be in this mess, right? This is an argument that some have made. And that sends the, the, the wrong signal when it comes to nuclear disarmament and nuclear proliferation, because if, if, if countries are learning that lesson, that you should get nuclear me- weapons or else Russia might invade you, um, then, you know, that's bad, obviously, in terms of, of the spread of weapons around the world, um, which I personally still think is a bad thing and leads to more conflict than than peace. Right, but presumably, um, but, if you're if you're North Korea, you know, you didn't need the Russian invasion to tell you that. Like, you, you you presumably think having a nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons is useful for your security because that'll that'll you know help deter U.S. You know, Libya is another example of a country that had these things and you know weapons of mass destruction got rid of them and then the the result. Yeah, but what happened to Libya? I mean, it wasn't good. Yeah, that wasn't like a good outcome for for Gaddafi. Right? Exactly. So he yeah. should not have yes. given up his weapons. Right. So like, and there, there was that, yeah, there was that whole Iraq thing. Right. I mean, maybe not for North Korea, but maybe for Turkey. Okay. That's fair. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like there are, there are, there are potential lessons to be learned here in whatever direction you, you want. And so, I mean, I would make the case, and I think I have before on this podcast that nuclear weapons wouldn't have been helpful to Ukraine in this case, even had they had them, that just hard to imagine a place where they could have been used effectively um, to uh, to deter Russian aggression or actually in like some battlefield use. And so like it's hard for me, it seems like, hey, this isn't a great case of, mm-hmm. well, if only we'd had nuclear weapons, we could have avoided all this. But I don't think that's the prevailing view in the public about this, this question. Um, it seems like, oh, if they'd had nuclear weapons, maybe they could have avoided this. So that's something that I think we're gonna have to grapple with. This is why if there are, if there are any listeners who will, who will take my course in the future, I often ask this as a midterm question. Because I think it's brilliant because it, we've, we've talked about this as sort of like the Rorschach test for how you think about like nuclear security. It's like, you know, either these nuclear weapons are either these great protectors that like to defend you from everything or this huge liability that, you know, sort of you have to de- then deal with. And then you get into these security dilemma dynamics and everybody around you starts building up there. So, like, it's a, it's a great sort of way to think about or to, to ask a student or, or anybody, how do you how do you think about international relations? Like, it, it's a very basic kind of point. Uh, but people diverge considerably in their in their views on this for reasons we've discussed. I feel like we've had a good episode here. We've covered a lot of territory. I was skeptical of the topics that you chose for today, uh, but we actually <laughs> I chose. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the listener, basically what happens is we we load this up and then Jeff just tells me what we're going to talk about. I have very little agency in this process, but that, that this worked so far. I'm, I'm I'm happy to roll with that. Well, you know who has agency is the listeners. So exactly. if you're listening to this and you would like us to talk about something else other than Russia Ukraine. TikTok maybe um, would be would be a potential topic. Um, send send us an email at cheaptalkpod at gmail dot com, or you can leave a voicemail for us at www.speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk, where you can tell us in your own words what you want us to talk about or point out someplace where Marcus was wrong. And, and might I make a plea to the listener? And it's it's not that I don't like talking about Russia Ukraine. It's obviously a huge 
perhaps the most important moment uh, of many of, of the listeners' lives from an international relations perspective. But it's just so depressing. And so I, was, I would like the listeners to, to maybe suggest some uh, topics that are more uplifting and, and happy. I know this doesn't happen very often in international relations. but if the- Do we have happy topics in international relations? I mean, the shooting down of the kids, like the high school, like project, uh, that was kind of fun. The balloon, the balloon thing. Yeah. I mean, that's not, okay. that's also, there's implications there for nuclear war too, but, <laughs> but I just think, you know, there have to be, I mean, that wasn't fun for the students who built that balloon. No, everybody else was fun for though. But you know, <laughs> we talked about UFOs and aliens last time, like that's fun and cheery. So I just kind of think that if the more cheery, we need, we need to balance are depressing yeah. sort of real world international relations war stuff with some more uplifting topics uh, that shows humanity's good side. Yeah, I like that idea. Send your suggestions in. We're always looking for ideas about what to talk about. Um, but in the meantime, let's leave it there. Thanks, Marcus, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure as always. I know. I know you hate this stuff, but it's it's. And it's not that I hate it. It's just that it seems like we we talk about the variants of the same thing every single week. You know, that's why I was trying to mix it up a little bit. A little little TikTok, a little, um, you want to talk about the lab leak hypothesis that now has been vindicated? (laughs) I really don't. Which I've been on the lab leak hypothesis since day one. A, I don't think it has been vindicated. And B, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. This did not come from a bat. Just what we need is all the... Cons- you, had, you had Bill Gates. So you had Bill Gates out there. We're going to put us in the Joe Rogan section of Spotify. <laughs> Two years ago, talking about how it came from a bat and it's because of global warming and climate change. All right. Fine. We don't have to go down to Joe Rogan. Although, if we did have crossover on now that we're on Spotify, we might get some crossover listeners. <laughs> That's right. If you like Joe Rogan, you'll like... Jeff and Marcus discuss the lab leak. (laughs) We really, you know what we should do is we should watch his podcast and then do like an after show, like where we talk about it. They probably have like 35 of those on Spotify. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to do that. At some point, at some point, Jeffrey, we have to also talk about your book. You've you've sold it. You've told people to buy it and you haven't told us what it is. You You haven't given us the main argument. There's nothing, you've said nothing about this book other than it's on Amazon and it's cheap now or cheaper. I think that sells it more than if I uh, if I tell people what's in it. I think that'll turn off some potential buyers. 